The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 153 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to thank a new reviewer. Uh, the Apple Podcast username is MacLynn12. Thank you so much for all of your kind words as well as your five-star review. These reviews really help people to find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. This week on the show, my guest, Jenny Oaks Baker, such an incredibly talented musician. She is a Grammy-nominated just star, and it was so much fun getting to know her and uh, getting to talk to her. One thing that we did not talk about in the episode that we meant to, she had a new album that just came out uh, a couple months ago, a few months back. Uh, It's called Epic, and if you go to JennyOaksBaker.com, not only can you order the CD, but she will actually sign it for you and even personalize it. There's an option to, to have it personalized. What an amazing gift it would be. Jenny is just phenomenal, and the album is beautiful. I've listened to it now a couple of times, and it is fantastic. So we've got that conversation coming up as well as this week in my Latter-day Life. I'll tell you about a very happy meal I had one time. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. Today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, it is our blessing and our privilege to have a bona fide star. We have a star (laughs) here on the podcast today. She is an international sensation. Jenny Oaks Baker, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you. Can you make all my introductions? I, I love sensation. That's I've never been called a sensation before. I love it. Thank you. I, I don't believe that for a second, <laughs> because there is no doubt that lots of people have called you a sensation, because you are. So I have so many questions about your music career, uh, but there's so much more to you. So let's get to know you first. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up. Well, um, I really feel like the Lord sent me to specific circumstances, like a specific family in specific circumstances so that he could help, like might help me develop my talent and utilize me to, to build the kingdom in the way that he hopefully wanted me to. I was born to Dallin and June Oaks. My father was president of Brigham Young University when I was born. My mother was 42 years old. I was born 13 years after the rest of their five children. They Whoa. Were, yeah. I, all right. This is already blowing my mind. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So my parents had five children by the time my mom was 28 or 29 and then tried to have um, children for the next 13 years and weren't able to, despite doing everything they could at the time. Of course, there was an IVF. And so they were able, 13 years later, they were able to have me and then tried to have more children after me. And, and that wasn't in the Lord's plan. My mother, because I was born so much after their other children, she had a lot more time to devote to helping me develop my talents. And the rest of my siblings were married pretty young, 
by the time I was six, they were kind of out of the house and married. And so I was almost raised as an only child, even though we had a big family. And so a lot of the focus could be on me and developing, helping me develop my talent. I also didn't have a ton of distractions at home with siblings. It wasn't a super fun child. (laughs) I mean, my parents were wonderful, but it wasn't full of lots of fun, you know, sibling time. But Heavenly Father, I think, placed, he wanted us, I I think it was by design, the way I was was raised. And I was raised in a very religious home, of course, and... And let's jump into that really fast, in fact, because you said your your father was the the president of BYU at the time when you were born. Uh, and, and normally I have to ask my guests, were you raised in the church? You, I do not have to ask if your parents are members. Tell us a little bit more about who your parents are. So my father is now in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, so he is an apostle of the Lord and... Um, works very closely, of course, with President Russell M. Nelson and and President Eyring. Um, so when I was growing up, my father was when I was born. He was BYU president, and then he was on the Supreme. He was a Supreme Court Justice of Utah, and then he was called to be an apostle when I was nine years old. And at that point, we moved to Salt Lake, and um, so I I was raised, you know, in that environment. Um, yeah. Life and um, it, it. I mean, my upbringing wasn't that different than anyone who's raised in a staunchly religious LDS home. Um, I, when people ask what's it like to be the daughter of a general authority or an apostle, I I I've thought a lot about it, and it's it's kind of the same. It's the same church. It's the same gospel. It's the same doctrine. It's the same teachings. It's the small and simple things. So. So anyone who's been raised in a home, and not everyone has had that privilege and blessing, I understand. But if you have, it's the same as being raised in any LDS home where your father honors the priesthood and your mother, um, you know, stands stands by the teachings of the church. And yeah, um, and every I mean, everyone, I mean, not, I mean, a lot of people do understand what it's like to be the daughter of a general authority in that respect. Right, right. We we had we had David Hunter on the show who is the grandson of Howard W. Hunter. And he, he said, uh, he said, man, I wish you could. And I, I got to meet his grandfather uh, before he passed, but he said, I wish that people could really get to know my grandfather because he's very different from the man that you saw in conference. Uh-huh. Uh, do you find that to be the same experience with your father or do we, do we kind of get to know him through his speaking and through his acts? Well, I don't see a disc disconnect between conference and the way he is because in his conference talks I see the goodness and the love and the light and the I mean he is more serious in his conference talk but it's not like a angry serious it's like a this is important seriousness yeah and um he's just very direct and I I love direct speaking I love direct communication so for me I don't I don't see any kind of disconnect between his jovial good nature in person and the directness of his conference talks. Cause I see, I, it's just kind of the same hold. Right. Right. I think some people just kind of see the directness and see the seriousness and they don't understand that behind it is this great goodness and love and light and joy and intensity of just the gospel. So, yeah. I mean, but I do see that like when people, when he goes to state conferences, he's a lot 
more smiley and and jovial. Yeah, gotcha. Maybe less serious, but it's still. I mean, so people, I think, when they come to a state conference, they they feel like it's a different experience than seeing them at a conference. But I don't know. I just I love direct communication, so I'm grateful that he gives it to us straight at conference. <laughs> so, so no one, no one's. We're not supposed to have favorite apostles. I'm sure. I've never actually heard that as doctrine, but I'm sure we're not supposed to. <laughs> However, there are people who resonate with us. There are three apostles uh, currently who, for whatever reason, just resonate with my soul, and your father's one of them. Oh. I feel I do. I feel like when he speaks, it's forceful and beautiful, and there's a lot of love and a lot of doctrine. Your father is doctrinally Absolutely. phenomenal, right? Yeah. So, well, I love how courageous he is. I just mm. admire that so much because. He, my dad's superpower, he has many, but one of his major superpowers, I believe, is integrity. And his integrity is perfect. I'm not going to say it's it's higher than, than anyone else, but his integrity is just top notch. And I think that plays into his courageousness from the pulpit mm. and in what he says, because he's not afraid of standing for truth and righteousness, no matter what, you know, come what may. And um, I'm sure there's a lot, I know that there's a lot of people on kind of the edge of, of activity or who have certain issues with the church who do not appreciate my father's courage and, and forthrightness and um, laying it out just straight. And he doesn't care because he knows he's on the Lord's side and he's, he's saying exactly what the Lord would have him say. And I just admire that so much. I love it. I, your, your father to me, I always make the comparison with Abinadi. Oh, he's a yeah. very straight, powerful speaker. And yeah. I get the feeling that when his critics come that much like Abinadi, he could say, wait, I'm not done yet. <laughs> and, and then just yeah. keep talking and then at the end say, okay, I'm done now. But I, he's anyway, what an one awesome of his, One of his last conference talks, a lot of friends of mine were likening him. And I don't remember what it was about, but it was pretty powerful. And he just said it straight. And he was, was saying some things that the world would not appreciate. And yep. um, people were likening him to Samuel the Nephite. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Up on the wall, just getting arrows flung at him and nobody could hit him. Uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, I totally, totally get that. So, so you were raised. I mean, your your name is uh, America's violinist. At what age did you start playing the violin? I was four years old, and I started the Suzuki Method. And I'd had a couple sisters who had played the violin, not really serious, not super seriously, and they hadn't started when they were young, and they hadn't had the the benefit of having my mom sit down and practice with them every day like I did. But my, my mother had a couple of violinists and when she heard some young violinists who had studied through the Suzuki method and how advanced they were, she was so impressed that she asked me when I was four years old, would you want to play the violin? And I said, yeah, that would be great. Let's try it. And so it was just kind of one of the things I was doing along with other things like dance that little girls do. And, but a, Eventually, I just started picking violin over every other interest, and mm. it just kind of became. I, I, we could. My mom could see a talent that I had, and and um, she helped me develop it. What, when did you know that violin was more than a hobby? Well, my patriarchal blessing actually was really helpful in that because 
then I could see that the Lord had something great in store for me. It was a pretty incredible blessing. And um, so that, that was very meaningful to me because I was like, wow, <laughs> there's, this isn't just a kind of a pastime or a little hobby. This is, it looks like this is what the Lord wants me to be doing. So that was, I was already practicing hours a day. I was 15 when I got it. Um, so I was already practicing three, four hours a day by then. So it wasn't like I was just kind of tinkering around, but that was really meaningful to me. And then when I, I always intended on going to BYU, that was always my dream. And when I was in high school, I, I was really busy. I did regular public school and AP classes and madrigals and tennis teams. So I was trying to have a little bit of a life on the side of the violin. Um, I, I mean, outside of just violin, um, which is something my parents wanted me to have. They wanted me to be well-rounded, which I'm grateful yeah. for. Um, anyway, but so I didn't have a lot of time for social life. And I also mm. was incredibly close to my mom and my dad, particularly my mom. She was home every weekend while dad was traveling and yeah. we would spend a lot of time together, but I, I, I didn't have a lot of time for social life. And, but my mom just said, just practice now, Jenny. And then when you go to BYU, you can kind of, you know, be more casual with your music and you'll, you'll have lots of fun dating experiences there. So that was kind of my goal. I was just going to work really hard in high school and then go to BYU and have a fun college experience. But yeah. I practiced so much in high school that I got into one of the top music schools in the world. <laughs> so I never, <laughs> I never had my fun BYU experience, which I still feel like, I feel like I missed out. I mean, I know I missed out. I, my college experience was not fun. It was a great experience. I'm so grateful I did it. I'm so grateful I have that training, but it wasn't fun. It was it was it was worthwhile. It but it yeah. was hard, hard, hard work. Um. So I after so when I got into Curtis Institute of Music and decided to go full full in to music, that was another little point where I'm sure this is what what I want to do with my life, and it was. Yeah. And when I when I found a very expensive violin that the Lord <laughs> led me to. I wasn't even looking. I had no money. My parents had no money to buy an expensive instrument. And the Lord kind of just dropped it at my doorstep. And I felt like, I mean, that's another story, but um, he, he really just placed it in my hands. And I had to then decide, am I really going to go into music? Because then it was a financial thing. <laughs> Is this really, right? Do I, yeah. do I take on this financial responsibility Am I really going to do this? So that was another. So after I bought my violin, the, I mean, big doors were starting to open for me. And it, it's that was that was the last. OK, let's do it. <laughs> moment. Yeah. So so how was I mean, so you went to school in Philadelphia. Curtis schools in Philadelphia. Yes. So the yeah, um, Curtis Institute of Music. So the Curtis Institute of Music, which is super prestigious, like incredible, very small. I mean, very picky about who they you know, who they have there. How was your experience going from kind of a life in, in Utah to uh, Philadelphia? It was, it was so scary. It was so scary. I look back on that time and I, I just can't believe I did it. And the Lord, the Lord was by my side, but oh mm. my goodness, I, it's just so, it was so hard, but um, it was what I was supposed to do. And I kind of felt like, I mean, I never felt like I was supposed to serve a mission. If I'd been a, a man, I would have served. But as a woman, I didn't feel like that was what I was deemed, what I what was my responsibility. And mm. Curtis, I felt like Curtis was my mission. 
And I was supposed to just give my all for those four years and just kind of become what the Lord wanted me to become musically. And, and so I, I did it, but it was not easy. I lived alone. They didn't have dorm rooms at the time. So I went from this pretty sheltered environment living <laughs> with my yeah. mom and an apostle of the Lord to living by myself in Philadelphia at age 18. And um, I went to institute every Wednesday night and I went to church every Sunday. And that was, that was all the interaction I had with, with members of the church. And I was lonely I was the only Mormon at Curtis and yeah, I was lonely. I was the only one, you know, living the standards that I've been taught and I had very few close friends and very little social life. And I would go to, I would go to Curtis every morning. I'd be there, you know, when it, I wasn't you know, there at 6am, but I'd be there by eight or nine and I would not leave until 11pm every night. And then on wow. Sunday, Sunday, I wouldn't practice, but I, Monday through Saturday, I was there full time. I also then went on to Juilliard. How, how was your experience at Juilliard? So Curtis was amazing because it's so small. Curtis is about 120 people, enough to make an orchestra plus a plus some pianists and opera studio and some organists. And that's it. Oh, and some conductors. Um, So it's very small. Juilliard is very large compared to Curtis, but it's only about 750, at least when I was there. Every, I feel like everything was kind of put into my, my musical soup at Curtis. Like I got input from so many world-class artists and my peers where we were playing lots of chamber music and orchestra. And it was pretty incredible. And then Juilliard, I feel like my soup kind of simmered for a couple of years. Mm. Not, I, for me personally, it was my master's degree program. Um, I was also, my mother was diagnosed with cancer right before I went to Juilliard. I also met my husband my first week of being in New York, not at wow. Juilliard, but at the Singles Ward. And so my mom was dying of cancer my first year. I had met my soon to be husband and we got married my first year. And then my mom died between my first and second years at Juilliard. So I like so many things were coming, like so many big life changes were happening in my life that not a whole lot got put in at Juilliard <laughs> and whether that was, it was, it was just a combination of lots of things. I mean, I learned a lot and I practiced hard, but I feel like my soup was just kind of simmering. And then after yeah. Juilliard, I had this one particular experience that like I can, I know the moment I became an artist. About six months after my mom had passed away, I had a teacher at Juilliard who I didn't really connect with. He wasn't a really great communicator. He'd been used to performing. Like he, I think his teaching style was, was demonstration instead of communication. And so he but he was very old by the time he was my teacher. And so he would say, play it like this. And then he'd play it, but he couldn't really play very well anymore. So mm. Juliet was kind of a couple of difficult years because of my mom dying. And it was just an interesting, it's an interesting place, but I'm so grateful for the training I received. The moment I became an artist, I was doing this silly little concert. It was, it was just in a black box somewhere in New York. I think it was on the NYU campus. I was, playing it was an insignificant concert and um I was about to walk on stage and I was feeling really frustrated because I'd had for the past so I was probably 20 23 or 24 I was almost ready to graduate with my my master's from Juilliard 
I'd had 20 years of teachers telling me everything I was doing wrong, which is what they're supposed to do. That's what teachers mm-hmm. do. They, they give you constructive criticism so you can get better. But after 20 years of it, I was starting to feel like I can't do anything right. Everyone's just telling me everything I'm doing wrong. And I was starting to feel kind of like caged in this, everything I do is wrong, like box. And um, into my mind, and my mother had passed away about six months before. And into my mind, I was just about to walk on stage feeling just this angst. And into my mind came my mother's voice very strongly. And she said, you just tell them all to go to. And actually, in my mind, my angel mother actually said that word. Incredible. So she like, very like, it was like, okay. And I, and I don't swear. And like, she didn't swear, but like, it was very, I mean, it was, it was pretty powerful. And so I went out and I walked on stage and I gave the performance of a lifetime because I just kind of shook off those bonds of trying to please everyone, my music, mm. musical, you know, teachers. And I just gave the, I played it the way I wanted to play. You know, I did yeah. it my way. That is such a fantastic story. I know. And, and my, my dear friend, Jenny, Naylor Richards, who was at Juilliard, um, there were there were quite a few LDS kids at Juilliard. She was my best friend there. She was an LDS pianist. We played a lot together, and I told her about this experience, and we we started calling it the Spirit of June, and it was <laughs> it was so so powerful to me at the time that it like it was it was completely um, musically life changing because I just was like I'm going to do it my way. And I had, and if I'd done that when I was six years old, it would have been catastrophic. Catastrophic. You can't do that until you've had at least, you know, twenty years of the best teachers in the world helping you along to find, you know, a good, right, a musical story or whatever. Um, but I, I'd received twenty years of of world class instruction and coachings from the best musicians in the world, and I was ready to do it my way, and so. That's, that's probably the greatest thing I got. I got three, I got two great things at Juilliard. Well, I met my, my best friend at the time, Jenny Richards, who also helped me through losing my mom. I met my husband in the New York singles Lord, and I had my mother's um, empowering statement of helping me to play it my way. Oh, that is awesome. I, I want to go back just one step uh, to this time. Here you are in New York. You know, you're at the most, I mean, Juilliard, I think most people would agree is the pinnacle. I mean, that's it. You're working on all these things and your mom is sick. You end up losing your mom, which again, you have a unique relationship with your mom because of uh, your age and where you fall in the family. Your your dad is, you know, he he's not giving up any mantles or anything during this time of trial. Right. How, how much, like, where did that put you in your journey of faith? At that time, I, I I feel like hearing it, I would have been in sort of a, a bit of a panic. Like, where's my stability? Where's my, you know, where where were you, you know, spiritually, and and what was that time like? Well, I mean, of course, trials are difficult. However, I learned that my mom had cancer when I was standing on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. So between graduating from Curtis and starting Juilliard, I went to BYU Jerusalem Center. And, um, which was a really lovely 
place to be when you, your life comes crumbling down upon you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I was in the land where the Lord had performed so many miracles. And when I found out she had cancer, so I was standing at a payphone on the banks of Sea of Galilee. And when I found out, and I, I knew that the Lord who had healed the sick and caused the dead to, to live, um, I knew that he could heal my mother. And I had full faith that he would do so. Of course he was going to heal my mother. Like I was going to pray for it and it would happen. And so I prayed and prayed in faith for her recovery. And as I did so, I started to wonder about how the Lord's will worked into my faith. <laughs> I was like, I pray, yeah. pray, I'm going to pray for her recovery, but you know, the Lord's will, how does that work? And so I emailed my, my dad and I'm so grateful. I emailed him instead of called him because for the next, you know, 25 years, I've been able to use this this quote in firesides, and I share it almost every single fireside I give because it was life changing for me and my faith. I mean, I was I was faithful before. It's not like it changed, sure, but it helped me understand so much about about how faith works in relation to the Lord's will. And I so I said, how does faith work? You know, I asked this question in relation to the Lord's will. And he said, true faith is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we have faith in is based on faith or trust in the Lord that he will do what is like right for us in our, in our mm. behalf. And so we don't have faith that something specific will happen, but we have faith in the Lord. And so mm. we pray and we exercise our faith in the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do. And so that's how, that's how faith works. And so when I lost my mother, I didn't have faith that she would recover. I had faith in the Lord. So when she didn't recover, my faith in the Lord wasn't shattered. My faith in the Lord was strengthened and not shattered. Because if I'd have faith, if I prayed for her recovery and had faith in her recovery and she didn't recover, then my faith could have been damaged. But I had faith wow. in the Lord and I knew that his will was that she pass on and that he loved our family and it was the Lord's will. And so that was the way that I, my faith was strengthened through the experience instead of damaged. And I'm so, so grateful for that response that helped me understand that it's not faith that, you know, you get this job or faith that this, this sickness goes away or faith, you know what I mean? It's faith in the Lord. And so that, that really helped me. And, and just seeing, the blessings, the way the Lord helped our family through it, helped my father through it. And the blessings, I mean, even though it's hard not to have my mother, I, she died when I was 23. Um, it's, of course, hard. I, she never met my children on this earth. I know she picked them out because <laughs> they're pretty good ones. Um, <laughs> but not having my mother has been hard. But, I, of course, I see blessings that have come from it. Um, I've, my father was a good person before she died, but he's an incredible person after having gone through, he knows what it's like to lose a loved one. And then having Kristen, my dad's wife, who's lovely in our life has been a huge blessing. And she's an incredible woman, incredible grandmother and, and a really great support to him and could keep up with him. And so it's, 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 I mean, there's definitely blessings and, um, that have come from it. And I, I'm a stronger person. My faith is stronger. And, um, and I feel like my mom is my problem. My mom is probably at more concerts now, not being alive. <laughs> than She would have been had she been alive. 
So uh, that is awesome perspective. I love the gospel perspective to it. And oh, I think you're so life saving. How soon after, or was it while you were at Juilliard that you got married, or was it after? Yeah. So I know that God brought me my husband because of my mother's prayers. So as soon as she found out she had cancer, she started all of her other siblings or all of her other children been married for, you know, more than 15 years. And, mm. um, so she immediately started praying that I would be able to find someone to marry before she died. That was kind of the last loose end in her life that she wanted taken care of before she died. So she, we were praying for her recovery, but she was praying that I would find someone to marry. And the day that of course she was praying she would recover too i'm sure <laughs> but but her sure. main, she really that was a, a big desire of hers and so she could let, die knowing that i I'd, I'd be fine and um anyway so the day our family fasted for her recovery we did this family fast was the day i met my husband matt and he was only supposed to be in new york that one sunday um, because he was interviewing for a job. He was attending Utah State University and he was interviewing for a job in New York and went to church. And I went to the singles ward and I was passing out programs because that's a good scoping spot to see what <laughs> it was my, my first or second Sunday in, in Manhattan. And I kind of, our eyes met and I decided I'll go sit by this, by this cute guy. And, but then some, he was sitting like two feet in on the last bench and that's a good little slip in place. But then some dude went and sat there right by Matt. And in order to sit by Matt, after the meeting had begun, I had to climb over the dude, climb over Matt and sit in the middle, which is, which is not very subtle. But I am not a very subtle person. And so I'm like, well, whatever, I'll just go sit by him. So I went and sat by him and we just started kind of whispering as the meeting was beginning, which I'm sure is not what we're supposed to do, but oh, well. And, um, we just started kind of introducing ourselves and he, he was new in New York just there one Sunday from Utah and I was newly in New York and he wanted to help me feel that he was from good Mormon stock and from a righteous family. And so he, um, he just wanted to help me know his pedigree right, <laughs> off, right off the bat within like five seconds of meeting each other. So we started saying, well, my father's been a bishop and oh. my father and you can see where this is going. My father has been a stake president. And in fact, my father's now a mission president. And he just uh, folded his hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I just let Maybe him go. This is the best go. story. I know. Oh, this is great. I just let him go. And he just sat there quite <laughs> content. And I said, well, my father's an apostle. <laughs> <laughs> And the best part is, like, I think most guys would have excused themselves and never come back. Like, yeah. run away fast <laughs> as possible. But Matt is a very confident guy and takes things in stride. And um, he just said, oh, well, which one? And so I just, I grabbed my scriptures that my father had given me because they were the little mini quad that's too small for old eyes. Yeah. Um, it said Elder Dallin H. Oaks. So I just kind of showed him my scriptures. <laughs> and uh, that was our first like conversation. Jenny, that is one of the most classic things I have ever heard. That Isn't is that so awesome? funny. I know. Oh, and that then is by the awesome. time, so he was just in New York interviewing for a week and I was starting up school. It was kind of the initiation kind of week. And so I had a little more time than normal. And we just hung out in New York for a week and a half, just dating in New York, which is a really good place to date. 
And he had his parents' credit cards. (laughs) (laughs) Another great way to date. And... uh, (laughs) And so we just hung out in New York and we went to a Yankees game and we went to Broadway shows. We went on a circle line cruise <laughs> and we like, we went, I mean, like just, we just did New York. We went to dinner. It was quite a night. Oh, that is so fun. And by the time he left a week and a half later, we weren't going to date other people. He went and met my parents without me, which is, takes a lot of chutzpah. And then we were supposed to be married in August because his mom, his parents were mission presidents. They were coming back in July. But then in January, my mother wasn't doing too well with her cancer. And so we moved the date up to March. Got married in March, and then my mom died in July. Wow. What a time in life. Yeah, it was um, pretty dramatic. From here, I don't know exactly where it goes, but I want to hit on some of the highlights. Did you, when, so once you got married, did was it, hey, my plan is to go out and be a recording artist and a performer or did that just kind of happen? So what's funny is I'm a planner. I'm a type A perfectionist planner that likes, I would like to know every, I would like to have my whole life, you know, in my planner right now. That would make me really happy. (laughs) When I was younger, I knew I wanted to be a concert violinist and a stay at home mother that was like present. So Mm. the problem is, those two things generally don't go together very well. No, they're not compatible. Sure. Yeah, they're not. So I couldn't figure it out. And I would just spend like so much time just stressed out. How am I going to do this? How am I going to fulfill, you know, my potential, my musical potential and build the kingdom through my gifts and be a stay at home mother? How am I going to do this? Matt got a job down in Washington, D.C. So we, we moved out to D.C. and I got into the National Symphony which was like the dream job for a musician. Yeah, wow. Part-time work, full-time pay. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good job. It's a That's great. really, really good job. <laughs> I was playing with really great musicians and I loved it. And I just went to the Kennedy Center a few times a week and rehearsed and performed and came home. And it was it was really nice job. And I liked the people and I liked the music and I loved the Kennedy Center. It was just fabulous. And I started having children and I, it was great. And I, I had also started recording albums a little bit before I started having kids. I guess my first album came out, and I think I got married a week later. So I think my wow. mom was, yeah, that, and how that happened, that's kind of a cool story. I'll tell in a second. But my, I remember my mom, one of the last excursions she had was to see my CD in the window at Deseret Book. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so she saw my album, my first album come out. And then I was recording my second album, which I dedicated to her, which I titled Songs My Mother Taught Me. She heard me practicing and that those songs are the last things she ever heard me play. So wow. I think one of the last things I played for her was Songs My Mother Taught Me, which was really sweet. In that her was bed. powerful. She laid in, in her kind of her sick bed. So I was trying to pay off my violin. And um, so during my during the Christmas break, um, I was invited to play the Nutcracker at Ballet West, and mm. um, just to make some extra money to help pay off my violin. And um, while I was just in intermission one one night, it was a Saturday night, and I was just talking to this percussionist who's a really nice guy named Kenny Hodges, and we were just chatting. And he said that he produced albums for Deseret Book. And I said, just kind of like, I want to be a princess. I mean, I want to have a $5 million. <laughs> I just said, 
I want to make a CD. But it was totally just like not even like, <laughs> of course I want to make a CD. But I just said, I want to make a CD. I'd never thought about it before, honestly. But I just mm. said, I want to make a CD. And he said, okay, well, make me a demo. And I said, Ugh, I'm just so busy. Like I was dating a lot of guys at the time. I wasn't married yet. And like, cause when I, I, it's pretty slim pickings in Philadelphia. And so yeah. I was busy dating and, you know, with my family and sure. Um, so I didn't want to make a demo. <laughs> that sounded like a lot of work. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm performing a solo with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir tomorrow. I was playing mm. a couple solos with them. And so I said, well, can't you just watch that? <laughs> and he said, okay. And so I <laughs> he just pushed record on my Mormon Tabernacle Choir performance on the spoken word. And that was my demo. And so he took that, Kenny Hodges took that to Sherry Dew and they, they signed me. <laughs> no, come on. Yeah. That's how I got, that's how I got started making albums. And so, <laughs> that's amazing. I know it is. I had, I'm like, I hadn't thought that out. That's just how it started. That was a really good demo. So if you ever need a demo for a Deseret book, call it a fire. <laughs> so well, make a demo with you and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. All you got to do is just play with the Mormon Tabernacle <laughs> Choir. No problem, Jenny. Yeah, so easy. Or have a VCR tape they hit record. That's the other thing. Yeah, really. Oh, that is hilarious. Anyway, what a great so, story. I know. My life. And the thing is, like, I've tried, and I'll tell you more things that happen, but like, I've tried to make my career be a certain way, the world that the world, like all my peers at Curtis and Juilliard have their careers have happened in certain ways. They get Avery Fisher career grants. So they get this manager or they get, you know, this opportunity. My opportunities are straight up out of the blue from the Lord. I just call that the Lord and I've kind of come to see that the Lord is my manager and he just doesn't want anyone else Uh. in the water. So like he, doesn't, he doesn't allow me to have the same kind of career as anyone else because he's my manager and he's in charge and he wants me to learn life's lessons and he wants me to build the kingdom in certain ways. And that's the way it is. And I'm like, okay, let's, let, this is great. This has worked out so far. And he doesn't care if I make money, but that's okay. He takes care of me in other ways. Listeners to this show every week know one thing about me, and that is that I am a raving both Disneyland and Disney World fan. I love everything about it. I'm an annual pass holder. Right. You, you have a connection to Disneyland and Disney World that is so unbelievable. It completely blows my mind. Tell us <laughs> about that and how that came to be. Well, I, 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 by now I've recorded, I don't know, 17 or 18 albums. But about how, I don't know, maybe it's my like eighth or ninth album. Um, I had lots of young kids and we loved Disney world. We lived in Virginia. And so, um, we were traveling down to Disney at least once a year and I love, love Disney and love kids. And so I thought I should do a Disney album. And so we, I, Kurt Bester is phenomenal. And so he wrote all these great Disney arrangements. I recorded it. And then I was blessed to get a nomination, a Grammy nominee, sorry, a Grammy nomination for this album. Um, and then fast forward, I don't know, like 10 years, eight, eight years, our family was just, we were at Disney world and I came out of the bathroom actually. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute. What's my music? <laughs> and my family come running toward me cause they were at Disney world, right by the Cinderella castle. There's this bridge. They came running over this bridge. They're like, mom, mom, your music. And I was like, I hear it. And then all of a sudden, like, 
I was hearing my music at Disney World. And I had no idea. So it's not like they called me up and said, oh, we'd like to use your music. Can you can you sign and then we'll pay you money? No, I've never gotten a cent from it, which doesn't matter. But like, that's where my work, my life works. But like, while they were fireworks, at least I don't. It's not happening now. We were just at Disney World. And there's no fireworks, and my music is not playing. But it was a part of you know for a number of years, part of the pre-show for the Disney Land and Disney World. And I know that it's at a couple other places, but I still don't even know where in the world it's been played. But what's funny is I get this email. Every, before COVID saying where my music had been shazammed <laughs> and I could tell where in the world Disney was playing my Disney album <laughs> by where people were shazamming it. So I thought oh, that's cool. sure it's like in Hong Kong or it was before stupid COVID, but yeah. um, anyway, so that's my connection. But I, I mean, it would be nice if they'd be like, you can go on a Disney cruise and in exchange, we'll let you, we'll use your music for five years, but no. They just I, <laughs> I just cannot get over how cool that is. Jenny, that's one of the coolest things. But it's I, pretty cool. One thing I need to touch on, thank you for so just casually dropping in there. Oh, and by the way, it was nominated for a Grammy. That <laughs> is not – I'm sorry. I can't just let that slide as, oh, and then that was nominated for a Grammy. Talk about being nominated for a Grammy. Well, it, the thing is, it's more of just my spiritual – my spiritual path than how I became world famous. But about 10 years ago, um, I was nominated for a Grammy and I really, so many things were happening. I really thought, you know, I was, I really thought I was headed to be where this world famous violinist and that this Grammy nomination was just part of that path. And I was so excited and I walked the red carpet and met, I was, on the red carpet between, ugh, I haven't talked about this in a while, so I forget. But Alicia Keys was right in front of me or behind me, and I think Tina Turner or something. Like it was incredible. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was, wow. But what's funny is, you know how you kind of see on, I don't watch these shows anymore, but a long time ago when I'd watch Entertainment Tonight or whatever, it would be on. Um, You'd see on the red carpet, they yell out your name and they take a bunch of pictures. You know, that like moment where yeah, sure. photographers are yelling your name. Right. They were yelling my name, but not because they knew who I was. The way it works <laughs> is your handler, and I didn't have one. Your handler writes your name on a poster board. I mean, if you're Tina Turner, they know your name. But if you're Jenny Oaks Baker, they have no idea who you are. <laughs> so your handler writes your name on a poster board so the photographers see your name. And that's why they, that's how they <laughs> are calling Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. But what's really that is so funny. What's, what's funny is so Desert Book has not taken a lot of people to the red carpet. And so they were doing their best, but they didn't. We couldn't even find the red carpet. So most people <laughs> we almost missed it. Because most people that go to the Grammys or the Emmys or the Oscars or whatever, they have a handler from their record label or their whatever, their management, that knows what they're doing. They've taken lots of people through and they know what they're doing. Desert Bug doesn't know what they're doing as far as the red carpet goes. And so we couldn't find it. And there's no like, this is how you find there's no map to find the red carpet. So we were like wandering around trying to find it. We finally kind of found it. And the only reason we knew what to do, because they, they were basically like rolling it up. And the only reason we knew what to do is we had, my husband was working for Blackboard, this educational mm. software company. And the CEO, yeah. 
at the time who the founder and, and a starter originator of Blackboard was named Michael Chasen, who is a crack up. He's this really awesome Jewish guy. And we were friends with him and his wife. And um, he had snuck onto the Emmy red carpet Oh my gosh. Um, to a year before. Like he'd gone to the Emmys because he had money and they went to the Emmys. And he thought it would be cool to walk the red carpet. So this guy who has lots of guts, he snuck onto the will the red carpet with William Shatner. And William Shatner thought he seriously just like joined his people. And William Shatner thought he was part of the Emmys. And the Emmys thought he was part of William Shatner's people. So Michael Chasen was with us. So he knew how to walk the red carpet because he'd snuck on. And anyway, so he grabbed me. He's like, Jenny, I'll get you on. Because he knew what he was doing. <laughs> so he like, he like snuck me on. And he like knew where to go to put my name on the stupid posters. So like Michael Chasen wrote my name on the poster. So everybody, all those photographers are like calling Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. And like I got my little moment on the red carpet. And then I proceeded to go to the show and um didn't win <laughs> i didn't win but that's okay i proceeded to cry through the show actually um and my husband's like we're at the grammys and i'm like just i just lost <laughs> anyway so he's like we're at the grammys he thought it was the greatest concert ever and i was like i just lost and i couldn't stop crying but um what's interesting is being kind of in the middle of that hollywood scene kind of set me on this not worldly path but it kind of took my spirituality on a tailspin for, a, I don't know, for like six months because I really thought I had stars in my eyes and I'm still going to church and reading my scriptures and saying prayers and everything. I, mm. I was doing everything, but I kind of had my eyes, I'd kind of taken it away from the savior maybe and put it toward Hollywood. And I thought that was, I kind of, I kind of shifted my, where I was headed a little bit and mm. I was still doing the responsible things. So I wasn't, breaking commandments, but I just kind of had this worldly shift because I had been to the red carpet and that's where I was going and that's where I wanted to be. And, and I started like going tanning. (laughs) I started like, like trying (laughs) to like go shopping and wear all the right clothes. And I mean, not really, I could never afford that, but like I kind of, my shift got focused and I became really, really unsatisfied with my very, very beautiful life. And yeah, I kind of could see this, I could kind of see this isn't making me happy (laughs) and this isn't Mm. really going anywhere anyway. And I kind of found my way back to like understand that that's not my path and that's not where the Lord wants me to be. And that's not making me happy. And this is ridiculous. And the Lord is your manager. So stop banging your head against the worldly wall and trying to make things happen and just be grateful for the path the Lord has in store for you. And I found my way back and, and I didn't do anything and nobody would have known it. It was all an internal like turmoil thing. Yeah. Um, and a, it's just a lot happier to be where the Lord wants you to be. What a beautiful journey. I, Yeah. And I would think it'd be very easy to get caught up in those trappings. Um, and this is this has all carried you on to such an incredible life. And I want to get to the next stage, which is to talk about Family Four. But before yeah. we do... I mean, you as a soloist, uh, some of the people you've performed with, just looking just on your website, Gladys Knight and Marvin Hamlish and, I mean, (laughs) Condoleezza Rice, like, these names are so just huge. Every big thing, like, every big in the world thing, like, every kind of impressive in the worldly sense experience I've had 
has been with a religious tie. Like Mm. I haven't, you know, just been called (laughs) by this orchestra to just come play, you know, a, a rock program or whatever. Anytime I've played with a major orchestra, like Pittsburgh symphony, it's been a Christmas show where I'm playing sacred music. Mm. And when I perform at the national symphony, same thing. I played Ave Maria with Marvin Hamlish. Uh, and when I played with Gladys Knight, it was with the orchestra at Temple Square and the Mormon, what's it called now? Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. It, then it was the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Yeah. And Condoleezza Rice, we played Amazing Grace. And so it's just kind of interesting to me that it sounds like a really impressive, I mean, it sounds like a big of the world kind of, you know, thing I've had. But it's interesting to me that the Lord has gifted me each of these experiences. They have not happened because I've, that's been the the door that I knocked on necessarily. I knock on lots of doors and I work my tail off, but the doors that opens are the ones that the Lord just opens for me. And they always have a build the kingdom aspect. Always. He never, what a blessing. He never gives me a build the Jenny, pro, Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> he just gives me a build the kingdom <laughs> gift, which is great. Um, yeah. But it's not, it's not about build the Jenny at all. It's kingdom. <laughs> And I'm, I'm grateful. This leads us to this, this next generation. How did Family Four end up coming together? So this is the greatest miracle of my life. So basically, I was in the National Symphony when I got pregnant with our fourth child. I had been making a couple recordings, but not a whole lot. I had, I had been performing very little as a soloist. Then I got pregnant with our fourth child, and the spirit just started whispering to me that that I was not supposed to be in the symphony anymore, that when Matthew was, when my fourth child was born, which was Matthew, that I was supposed to leave the symphony. And it was, it was hard because it was a really good job and I loved it. And it, it, it's not a job that you walk away from. It's like getting into the NBA as a basketball player. I mean, you don't, mm. you don't get paid that much, but it's like, you don't walk away from that because that door will close, you know? And I, I, but I, you know, the whisperings of the spirit prompted me that that was what I was supposed to do. And I really pondered it and I prayed about it and I felt like I was supposed to do that, but it was still hard. And I, one really wonderful experience I had that helped me really know that that was not what the Lord wanted me to do was my husband and I took a trip to Paris right before Matthew was born. And we were there for Bastille Day, which is like their 4th of July. And we were um, just laying on on the lawn by the Eiffel tower, watching the fireworks. And as the fireworks display was going on, they had some really great orchestral music playing. And I was listening to this, this symphonic music. And I was thinking, I'll never play that song again. I'll never Mm. that work again. And it was kind of like a hard little realization that this was, this chapter of my life was coming to a close and, and I would never have that opportunity anymore. And into my mind came the words, it's only the beginning. Wow. And I had no idea what that meant because at the time I was walking away from basically everything I had musically in my life. I did not have solo performances lined up. And I really thought that when I left the symphony, I was kind of saying goodbye to music a bit. So I played my last concert and I couldn't, for legal reasons, I couldn't tell anyone I was leaving. And Mm. So I told the personnel manager and the administration, I sent in my letter of recommendation, recommendation, (laughs) resignation, but I walked away from my last concert and all my colleagues thought I was coming back after Matthew was born. And I knew I wasn't. 
And so nobody, they kind of gave me a hug goodbye, but it wasn't like a, we love you. Bye-bye. And I just walked out and I sat in the parking lot and I cried. Cause wow. I just left this huge part of my life behind. And I was, I was, I knew I was doing what was right. And I was happy to be home with my children. I love being a mother and I was so happy to be home with them, but it was hard. And I sat in my car and just like, ugly crying, not just kind of a little tear, but like ugly crying, bawling. The next day I had conductors starting to call me to come perform with them as a soloist. Wow. But what's interesting is like the, the Lord waited until I, till I walked into the darkness and gave up what he wanted me to give up before he started blessing me with something new and for me better. And that was when my solo career started is the day after I left the symphony, <laughs> but I had to leave the symphony first and walk yeah. to the darkness and show that I was willing to do what he wanted me to do. And I think so many times we have to make those sacrifices before we see the blessings. Right. And then, so Matthew was born and Laura had started playing the violin by then. Cause my kids, she started when she was three and she was five when Matthew was born. So I had four kids, five and under Laura. I started her on her violin when she was four, three, cause that's what you do with a three-year-old. <laughs> and then Anna, um, was, Four, I started her on piano because piano goes well with violin. And um, when Sarah was three, I started her on the cello because cello goes good with violin and piano. And I thought eventually these little girls will grow up and they can play together and that'll be sweet for them to play together. Yeah. I never envisioned playing with me. It didn't, the thought did not cross my mind. Wow. And then when Matthew was when Matthew turned three, I started him on the violin thinking that he could become a violist and they could play, you know, piano quartets and that'd be fun for them when they grew up. Still never, not a thought of playing with me. And um, Matthew for six months, I worked with him on violin and he could play his silly little twinkle, but he just didn't feel like it. So he'd throw the violin down and he'd do the little, like you stand him up and they bend their knees and the little gummy gummy. <laughs> he just I've been not, through that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. He would not do it. And he could, and it frustrated the heck out of me. And I kept giving up and starting again and giving up. And finally he threw it down one day and he said, I'm a pianoist. And I was like, okay, I guess he's not a violinist or a violist, but we already had a pianist. So I was like, well, why don't we try guitar? And I knew that Suzuki method that my violinist and cellist had done also had a guitar method. So a friend of ours had their kids in Suzuki guitar. And so we started him on guitar and he just took to it. He didn't fight it nearly as much as the violin. And so that was his instrument and he just took to it. And so once in a while people would ask us to just play with my, they heard that my kids played and they just say, what would your kids like to play one little song? And so um, the first thing they ever played together was simple gifts and it was just mm. a chunky little, t- chunky little two minute thing. And they played it together. It took us like three months to, to teach it to them. And then, and then like six months later, they'd play one other song on one other little program. And then six months later, they'd have two songs that they'd play. And I'd be in charge of this fireside or this, you know, we played a lot at the Washington DC temple visitor center festival of lights. And so I'd start putting them on one song every Christmas and then the next year, I'd put them on two songs. And then a few years later, I people really liked it. So I'd put them on half, half the program. And then they'd start playing with me on half the program. And then I'd teach them this song. And then I'd teach them this song. And then all of a sudden, it was three quarters of the program. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's all the program. And 
I look back on it and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, <laughs> I guess I'm playing with my children. This is wonderful. And awesome. And had I, and, and I, I see that like, this is how I'm a stay at home mother and I'm with my children and performing. I mean, I'm a stay at home mother with my children and I'm a performer because we're doing it together. And how beautiful is that? And had I just thought about it today, I would have been 16 years too late because Lara's night. Mm, yeah. So, so grateful that I didn't have it figured out, but the Lord did. And we just, my husband is incredibly supportive and like financially and, and with his time and resources and, and of our family and our whole family kind of revolves around all of our music. And, um, but the Lord had it figured out and we just had to kind of keep the commandments and follow the spirit for great things to happen in our family. And I'm so, so grateful. It's, it's a huge blessing and your children are so remarkably talented and I need to make sure we get this out there before we're, we're done recording for our audience. Go to JennyOaksBaker.com uh, and click on the Family 4 link. There are some videos that are so fantastic. I, I'm, I'm assuming they're on YouTube also. Yeah, they are. But and Facebook. And Facebook, yes. this The Mary Poppins Rooftop Medley, that is all time. Jenny, that is one of the best things. I mean, it's, it's so fun. It is so fun. And what I love is that your kids get so into it too. Uh-huh. So they, they just seem excited. Have you, have you ever put pressure on your husband to jump in? Well, he's in the Sound of Music medley. So oh, we, yeah. Yeah, we had the opportunity to um, go to Salzburg. Danny Drysdale has been our main videographer. He's, he hates that word. Director, sorry. He's, <laughs> he's a director. He will never forgive me. Um, anyway, so he's been our main director, and he's phenomenal. And um, we, we all went to Salzburg and filmed the Sound of Music video. And my husband, Matt, dressed up as Captain Von Trapp. Oh, yes. He sings Edelweiss. And it's it's fantastic. That is so <laughs> awesome. So he's and, – and, like, while it was one of the great – I've had a number of greatest musical experiences in my life. This one ranks up in, in the top two where we're performing at the top of the Austrian Alps, overlooking all of Austria, playing Climb Every Mountain, dressed in dirndls and lederhosen, with my husband dressed as Captain Von Trapp proudly looking on. It just didn't – it just doesn't get much better than that. It was, it was like – it's such a fun video. And the video is beautiful, and we need to give a shout-out to Danny because that's who connected us. I've, yeah. I've been – Danny's a big t- – I mean, he's done videos for a whole bunch of big artists right. like yourself and The Killers and yeah. so many others. And I've been blessed that I've been uh, – Danny's nice enough to let me write for him every once in a while. So the big question is, what's next? What is next for Jenny Oaks Baker and Family Four and all the things you have going? Well, the thing is, the Lord is in charge, and – he doesn't really tell me. <laughs> like, he, he just kind of shines the light just a, a couple steps ahead and we're, we're in, entering a new phase. So the last you know five years where I've been able to perform almost exclusively with my children, where they've all been home and, and at my disposal-ish, um, is kind of coming to an end because Lara, my oldest daughter, is starting her mission next week. She starts on September third. Wow. She starts home MTC, <laughs> and so we're going to be an MTC around here, and I'll have to behave myself. And um, <laughs> anyway, so she has been called to serve in Lisbon, Portugal mission, and so she in six weeks it'll be beginning of November, and hopefully she gets to go there, or she'll be reassigned somewhere stateside. 
so I, I, I'm losing one member of family for it, but yeah. so I, I, I can hire, there's a lot of talented young violinists I can hire, or we performed quite a few, quite a few concerts without her because she was at BYU last year. And sometimes she's like, mom, um, I have a final. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I guess your teachers won't let you out of your final for my concert. How annoying. Um, so yeah, so we, we've performed without various members of our, you know, family before and we can cover. So I'll just see, sometimes we'll cover her parts just within our family. Sometimes I'll hire a new violinist. And then ha- next year, Hannah goes off to school. She wants to go to a school back East or even maybe even London or, or, there's a great school in, in Scotland as well. And, and Paris is also on her radar and, but she'll be, she won't be, you know, she won't just be downstairs. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I can hire a pianist for sure, but I just, so, and then Sarah wants to go to music school as well. Back East, my cellist. And then Matthew, he's just 14, but within four years, he'll be either on a mission or away at school. And, um, so I, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I still perform as a soloist. I still know yeah. how to do that. I, my favorite performances are with my kids, but I don't want to stagnate them. I don't want them to feel like they can't get married and have their own families and go off and fill their, fulfill their dreams and reach their potential because I have a concert next Tuesday. So Right. I need to let them spread their wings and fly. And that's my job. And I would rather we just kind of push pause and never let them leave. <laughs> that would be great. I never want my kids to grow up and I wish I could have a whole new slew of them. I wish I could have four more. And that sure. would be lovely. And I've petitioned the Lord many times for that, but it hasn't happened. <laughs> so yeah, maybe I'll just have four more. <laughs> that would be uh, my that'd be my solution to this problem. But um, <laughs> I it would take a little while to grow them into the kind of musicians my other four are. But well, I, I think for the rest of our lives we'll always perform together, but it just might look a little different. What a blessing. Children that will join. I just don't know. So the Lord's in charge and we just keep doing what we're doing and doing our best and working our hardest and trying to be worthy of the blessings that will come. And, and, but I mean, in the, in the short term, I know it's happening. We were blessed to find sponsors to create a Christmas CD. So that comes out November 20th. Um, we were awesome. at it before Laura, you know, was leaving. And so November 20th, our, it's called joy to the world. And that will be available on my website on iTunes and um, at Deseret bookstores um, and Amazon, wherever LDS books are sold. So look for Joy to the World. We also recorded last year another album called Jenny Oaks Baker and Family Four. So we have these two CDs and we have the videos that will live forever. And we have, we're performing at Tuacon on, uh, as like the CD premiere concert on November 20th, 21st, Saturday. Yeah. Awesome. November 21st at Tuacon. And then we'll do some other shows here and there. So, and maybe Lara will be reassigned and won't leave until December 1st. And then I just don't know. <laughs> and we just do our best. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe her mission president will want us to come perform there. And Lara's like, no, mom, leave me alone. <laughs> like, let me have my own mission without you like, <laughs> crashing my mission. But I don't know. So we'll just see. We'll see it. I'm sure the Lord has something else. He's not going to design my whole life and then, leave me, 
you know, just of course sit, sit and do nothing. So I'm sure there's ways to build the kingdom that I can't even foresee. And I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I love it. I have loved every moment of this conversation, Jenny. Aww, you have you. had such a beautiful life and you have such a great message. And, and again, the fact that uh, I have zero musical talent whatsoever makes me so appreciate all of your talents and your family. We're going to wrap this up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, Jenny, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means having peace and joy in this life and direction. And I can't think of, and love. I just, and understanding why we're here. I'm just so grateful for the gospel I mean, life can be hard, of course, but having that hope as you wake up each day and know that the Lord loves you and he has a plan for you and everything will work out, like President Hinckley said, um, gives you such peace and joy and hope. And I'm just so grateful for that. And then temple ceilings and families can be together forever. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that. So I'm just so grateful for the gospel and and the way that we are know how to live so we can be happy in this life and and have happy lives in the future and for the eternity is just such a such a blessing. Mm, I love it. She is a wife, a mother. She is the daughter of an apostle and she is a world-class violinist. Jenny Oaks Baker, thank you so much for sharing your latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a joy. And my special thanks to Jenny Oaks Baker for taking the time uh, to talk with me. I so enjoyed getting to know her and have really been enjoying her music this week. Please go check it out. She is so talented. Thank you so much, Jenny. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, uh, you know, we've we've all been dealing with kind of the same thing with church, and, and every ward has done it differently. And it's one thing I'm really grateful for is that the church has given stake presidents and bishops a whole lot of latitude to figure out what works for their ward. And what we've been doing, I think I've mentioned before, is meeting once a month, uh, just the third Sunday of the month, and very limited. We, we have two sacrament meeting sessions. Uh, we actually just found out uh, this past Sunday that starting in October, we'll be going back to a weekly schedule. Limited numbers, but it's nice to be getting back to some normalcy. Uh, as I got into church, though, this past week uh, and sat down, we found out that uh, it was a testimony meeting. And it has been a long time since I've been to a testimony meeting. Uh, many, many months. You know, each time that we have had church, we've just had the regular speaker. But as our sweet bishop, who is such a good man, uh, stood up and shared his testimony and opened the meeting, I realized how much I had missed a testimony meeting. Now, if you were to ask me a year ago how I feel about testimony meetings, I'd shrug and say, yeah, testimony meetings are fine. I did not realize how hungry for a testimony meeting I was and what a blessing it was to see all the members of our neighborhood and our ward stand up and and share their testimonies with us was just incredible. And it kind of reminded me (laughs) This might be an odd comparison, but many years ago, uh, we've had my dear friend Jason Bringhurst on the show before, and uh, he is the author of the blog Rocky Mountain Sunshine and one of my absolute best friends. We were business partners, and we were in Taiwan many years ago, and we had had breakfast and then had visited some factories, and then uh, one of our business associates who lived there 
drove us out to another factory, but this factory was hours outside of Taipei. And by the time we got out there, we, it was approaching lunchtime, and we pulled into this small town. It was almost more of a village. It was so small. And we started saying, uh, yeah, it's about lunchtime, and we got an hour till we need to be at the factory. What are we doing here for lunch? And our friend uh, said, well, we'll just walk into a market, and uh, you can just choose something to eat there. And as we saw the markets there, they were just so small and so full of unfamiliar foods, I wouldn't have even known what to order. And I'm pretty adventurous. I think I'm a little more adventurous than Jason when it comes to trying foods. Uh, but but he and I have eaten, you know, uh, in a lot of different places. And But even for me, that was really just striking fear into me. What were we going to have? But we were really hungry. And as we drove down sort of the main street of this little village, we saw a little red sign. I mean, it was about 12 inches by 12 inches, but it was unmistakable. It was a red sign with a yellow symbol in the middle, and they were golden arches. And we quickly said to the driver, hey, that's a McDonald's sign. There's a McDonald's here. <laughs> pull over. Let's find it. And we were able to pull over. And our our friend from Taiwan could not understand why we would want to go to McDonald's instead of one of these local markets with all these unfamiliar foods uh, hanging out there. But we were so excited and we found it and it was unlike any McDonald's I've ever been to. It was a little hole in the wall uh, where only a few people could fit standing inside. There was nowhere to really sit down and eat. It was just a walk-up counter. And they had some interesting menu items. I remember specifically they had a black bean sort of a burger, and they had a couple of other burgers that we, we weren't sure what they were made out of. I remember we ordered one just to try it, uh, but we they also had the Big Mac there. And so we ordered Big Macs and fries, and it was about 90, 95% the same as it was here in the States. And I have never had a burger that tasted better. Now, if you were to ask me today where I have access to McDonald's all the time, what I think of McDonald's, I would tell you, I don't care about McDonald's. I don't think I've eaten at a McDonald's in years. I mean, it's just not something that I do. I'm not necessarily a fan of that place. But once that was the option, once it was taken away from me, that was the greatest thing ever. And it's kind of sad for me to realize in this time of COVID how many things I've taken for granted. And yet when they appear, just how important they are and how special they are, how this this testimony meeting, how much I've taken testimony meetings for granted, how much I've taken simple things like going to a movie for granted, and what a blessing these things are in our lives. And I think as we return to normal, whatever that means and however long that takes, I really pray that I will not take things for granted, that I will realize how special all the little things in my life are. It's so easy for us to complain about uh, the difficult things in life, but there are so many wonderful little things that we just take for granted until they're gone. And what a blessing that was. And every once in a while, when I drive by McDonald's, I smile, thinking of this tiny, tiny town in Taiwan and their little tiny McDonald's that seemed like the greatest thing on earth. What a blessing it was. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in again. We really appreciate it. If you get a chance to leave us a review, as I've mentioned before, 
Those reviews really help other people find the show. Uh, If you want to uh, reach out to us, we're on Facebook. We're also on Instagram. We'd love to have you follow us there. That's where we share upcoming guests. And uh, we just love interacting. We appreciate all the comments and all the wonderful messages you leave us there. I think that's about all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.